episode 1.16, Thistle Mountain. Before we get started on the episode, I have a few housekeeping items. First, I need to make a minor correction. Last episode, I said that the Karl Gutzloff-led translation of the Bible was completed in 1847. Uh, This was incorrect, and the right dates are 1837 for the New Testament and 1838 for the Old Testament. I'm not sure where this incorrect date came from, probably just miscopying into my notes. As we'll see, a publication date of 1847 would not match up with any other event. As I finish the script for this episode, March 12th, 2013, it's exactly three years since I published the first episode, 1.1, What is China? After several years of reading, research, and writing. As you might imagine, the life I'd imagined before March 2020 was not the life that we experienced. In addition to all of the shared experiences of the year 2020, I took a new job, lost my brother-in-law, and moved from Portland, Oregon, where I'd lived for more than 15 years, to a small town on the other side of the state, something that was very much not planned when I launched the podcast. Things have gone well, fortunately. I've got the same job, and it's hard to imagine going back to living in a big city. I'm recording this episode actually nearly two months later, in May, because we're now fostering two kids, which has disrupted production further. The show isn't where I would have wanted to see it after three years. I'm very proud of the quality of the episodes, but they haven't been coming out as regularly as I'd hoped. I've also had no energy to promote the show. From what I can tell from the download statistics, the show has around 60 dedicated listeners. That last part, the dedicated part, it means a lot to me. Thanks for listening. Really appreciate it. Over the next three years, I hope, hope, to get out more episodes and to increase the number of listeners substantially. So I have a favor to ask. If you enjoy the show, please, please share it with anyone you know who likes history podcasts. If you don't know anyone personally, recommend it to one of the podcast groups on Facebook, Reddit, Twitter, or wherever you hang out online. A history podcast named Tiny Insect isn't really optimized for search. And it's not about Greeks or Romans or World War II. So I really rely on personal recommendations to find listeners. Thank you. And thank you again for listening over the past three years. Now, on to the show. We're now at the part of the story where there will be too many things happening simultaneously to stick with a single timeline. The next five or so episodes will cover the period from Hong's return to Guanlubu to his final departure in 1850. To start will follow Feng Yunshan as he builds a community of faithful Christians called the Bai Shangdi Hui, the Society of God Worshippers. In this episode, we're going to look at the region where the society took root and grew, and what life was like there in the second half of the 1840s. Next episode, we'll learn about the group itself, how it grew, what they believed and did, and how a poor charcoal burner became the voice of God himself. Hong Shiquan returned to his home in Guangdong province at the end of 1844. He spent the previous months preaching and baptizing new converts in Guangxi province, holding worship services, and writing religious tracts to explain his beliefs and convert more followers. He'd been gone for seven months, and when he returned home, he expected to find one of his earliest and most zealous converts, Feng Yunshan, waiting for him. But Feng was nowhere to be found, and his family had not heard from him. During his time living in Guangxi, Hong was supported by the patronage of his more wealthy followers. It's likely that Hong's wife, Lai Xiying, 
work to support herself and their two young daughters in Hong's absence, though his father and at least two of his brothers may have helped them as well. Generally accepted gender norms in the Qing Empire dictated that a woman should be at home, ideally with bound feet that greatly restricted her movement. It's estimated that nearly half the women at the time had their feet bound, with the number increasing with one's class. Even if a woman's feet were not bound, society did not generally look kindly on them doing fieldwork or labor outside the home. Women could still contribute to the family's income through work such as spinning thread, an incredibly labor-intensive activity before mechanization, but opportunities were fairly limited. The Hakka people did not practice footbinding, however. Hakka women often did work in fields and outside the home. Written accounts of the time give us no further insight into what Lai did specifically during her husband's absence, nor what she thought of it all. This wasn't worth commenting on for the men who wrote our surviving texts. When Hong got back home, the people who ran the local school offered him his job back. They seemed to have forgiven him for desecrating their Confucian placards. Perhaps it was time to settle down for a bit, raise his family, and maybe have a son, so prized in 19th century Chinese society. And he wanted to write down more of his ideas. Over the next two years, Hong composed religious tracts, such as the exhortations that we discussed last episode. But to be honest, the sources aren't particularly clear why Hong and Feng would remain apart for the next few years. So where was Feng Yunshan? When Hong went to find his friend in Guiping City, administrative center for the eponymous county, he was told by a prominent member of the Zhang family that Feng had left for home. In fact, Feng was still in Guiping, staying with a different member of the Zhang family. The Zhangs were an extended family, much larger than a nuclear family or even what we might consider a regular extended family in the United States today. You know, uncles, first cousins, and grandparents. The Zhangs were wealthy and owned properties throughout the region, and some members of the family held minor government positions. Many were among the earliest followers of Shangdi and provided Feng with material support and introductions to their associates. Feng continued to spread the word of Shangdi and his younger son, Hong Shiquan. He preached the message of Hong's vision and the one true God, that salvation and redemption could be found in the Heavenly Father and Eldest Son, Jesus Christ, and by following his commandments. Feng performed the same baptism rites for his converts that Hong had in Sigu. In December 1844, not long after Hong returned to Guangdong province, Feng and some members of the Zhang family traveled north from Guiping to the village of Gulin, where the Zhangs owned some land. After just a few months, they pushed further north and west to Thistle Mountain, about 20 miles away from Guiping, where the Zhangs also owned some land. Thistle Mountain was a quote-unquote interior frontier, a territory within the empire's borders where Qing power was weak to non-existent. In this way, it was similar to the regions of Hebei and Shangxi provinces, where the White Lotus Movement launched their ill-fated rebellion 50 years earlier. It was also similar to southern Hunan, the province to the northeast of Guangxi. This part of Hunan, particularly Xining District, was witness to several large revolts with thousands of rebels through the late 1840s and early 1850s. The god worshippers in the region around Thistle Mountain and the circumstances that created them were far from unique in mid-19th century Qing China. But it was only the god worshippers, the nucleus for what would become the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom, 
that coalesced into a force strong enough to establish their own state and, just about, bring the entire empire crashing down. The county seat of Guiping was located where two smaller rivers joined to become the Shun River, which flowed east. The land around Guiping City was relatively productive, and the Shun River was navigable to large boats. To the north, south, and west of the city, the land was much more rugged, without large navigable rivers. Thistle Mountain was about 20 miles to the north, while Sigu, where Hong spent much of 1844, was 25 miles to the west. If you put Guiping City as the center of a circle, with a 30-mile radius, settlements with significant numbers of god worshippers would spread out in a 180-degree arc from the southwest to the northeast. In addition to Guiping County, there were large god-worshipping communities in nearby Gui and Pingnan counties. Guangxi province is semi-tropical, with most of the province located farther south than Miami, or about as far from the equator as Sao Paulo or Riyadh. The wild landscape is densely forested, with deer, Asian black bear, and half a dozen species of monkey. The land around Thistle Mountain itself was mountainous, and not particularly well suited to rice agriculture or the large silk plantations, like those found in the flat Pearl River Delta north of Guangzhou. Instead, residents subsisted largely on crops such as sweet potatoes and peanuts, which had arrived in Southeast Asia on Spanish galleons in the 16th century. The availability of these crops, especially sweet potatoes, helped more and more families scratch out a living here. Sweet potatoes don't require nearly as much labor as growing rice, which freed up farmers to pursue other work. The prevalence of New World crops like sweet potatoes and peanuts, along with improved rice cultivation, allowed the population of the Qing Empire to grow from 180 to over 400 million in the century between 1750 and 1850. Indigo, which is a plant used to make dye, was grown as a significant cash crop in Thistle Mountain. It contributed somewhere between 20 to 30 percent of residents' income and also fixed nitrogen in the soil to help it recover from crops like sweet potatoes or grain. Producing charcoal was also a common occupation, which maybe contributed about 10 percent of income. In the 1830s and 40s, more and more people reoccupied old silver mines, which have been made somewhat economical again thanks to the skyrocketing price of silver and lack of other opportunities. Before the Taiping departed Guangxi, struggling miners would join them in the thousands. Feng Yunshan preached to a population practicing a range of professions. Carpenters, opium smugglers, herdsmen and peddlers, bandits, blacksmiths, millers, bean curd producers, and day laborers. Women and men alike. The historian Jonathan Spence observed that Liang Fa's pamphlets included Jesus' full Sermon on the Mount. Given his Confucian training and its emphasis on memorization, Feng may have been able to recite it, even if he didn't have a written copy of Fa's text. It's easy to imagine many parts of the sermon resonating and appealing to the people of Thistle Mountain. The sermon opens with the Beatitudes, where Jesus famously says that the meek shall inherit the earth. Jesus also spends a long time discussing the importance of right behavior and condemning murder, adultery, and divorce, which resonated and reinforced Hong's rendering of the commandments. But turned to the other cheek, they did not. The god-worshippers, and later the Taiping, 
were not peacemakers except in the Roman sense, and showed no love for their enemies. In Lingnan, clan warfare and social structures manifested themselves differently from place to place. In Guangdong province, which had higher population densities, concentrated in rich farmland and working in industry, the rich gentry dominated clan hierarchies and decided when and why a clan would go to war. Clans were organized through the Baojia and military associations, and gentry usually had a close working relationship with local Qing bureaucrats. The rugged and poor Thistle Mountain region lacked the large estates that were required to support these kind of rich gentry. Clans here were more often controlled from the bottom up, with everyday people deciding when to fight and appointing their own leaders. However, in areas of Guangxi with enough wealth to support the gentry, Qing authority wasn't necessarily any stronger. Here, the so-called rice lords maintained such close connections to organized crime that drawing the line between them is impossible. Robert Weller writes that they, quote, ran their areas like satrapies, monopolizing armed force and controlling wealth. They effectively replaced civilian government in some areas, end quote. The Zhangs didn't rise quite to the level of rice lords, but Feng, Hong, and the god worshippers did ally themselves with at least one rice lord as they built up their military force in the late 1840s. When Feng arrived at Thistle Mountain, he may have encountered a young man named Li Xucheng. Li would become one of the most accomplished Taiping generals, but at this point he was a poor, struggling man in his early 20s. Two decades later, he would recall how difficult it was growing up. Quote, My family was destitute and had not enough to eat. We lived by tilling the land, cultivating mountain slopes, and hiring out as laborers. At the age of eight, nine, and ten, I studied with my uncle, but my family was poor and I could not study longer. It was difficult to make ends meet each day. To get enough in a month was even more difficult. End quote. Lee's family wasn't alone. The entire region was incredibly poor, even by the standards of the 19th century. Around this time, there was a drought so bad that the coal miners in Guangxi ate their coal to sate their hunger. In 1845, Feng's first full year at Thistle Mountain, a drought got so bad that the governor gave up directing prayers to the rain god and cast about for a person to solve their problems. A monk came forth and stood outside for three days, and rain soon followed. A few months later, an epidemic swept through the area. As the 1840s progressed, further calamities struck the region. The British launched a vigorous naval campaign against pirates operating in and around Guangzhou, driving them inland. Some took their boats up the North River further into Guangdong, while others went down the West River into Guangxi. They fought with local smugglers and opium traders for a shrinking market, as the bulk of the trade moved north to Shanghai, one of the cities designated as a quote-unquote treaty port at the conclusion of the Opium War and a gateway to the Yangtze. The historian Philip Kuhn writes that thousands of mercenaries who had demobilized after the Opium War joined the ranks of highly organized smugglers and bandits. Quote, by 1850, the South was scourged by roving bands of armed men who preyed upon the local populace but were tied to no local community and remained essentially outside local society. End quote. The Xing government, it's safe to say, was overwhelmed. 
On the West River, for example, they only fielded a handful of small boats and fewer than a hundred soldiers to patrol the entire river. A single pirate leader in the second half of the 1840s, by contrast, led thousands, and at one point captured two district seats. By 1846, river bandits had entered Guiping County and began operating near Thistle Mountain. Li Xucheng recalled years later, quote, Bandit raids continued year after year, the unending robbing of pawn shops and attacks on towns, end quote. This climate of endemic violence, Li says, drove many to join the God Worshippers. One reason why Thistle Mountain became the God Worshippers' main base of operation was that the area could be easily defended, with only a small number of villages connected on by foot trails. It could only be approached from two directions. The English word bandit, the closest English translation to the word used in Qing sources, doesn't really do justice to the size and sophistication of these groups. Jonathan Spence writes that the pirates driven inland by the British were so well-organized and well-equipped that they took over the local drug-smuggling businesses. They formed joint stock companies to invest in protection rackets. One gang of over a hundred men barricaded a main road and river heading north out of Guangzhou, where they collected tolls from passing travelers and merchants with impunity. Qing officials did nothing, and eventually people just had to start using a different way or not traveling at all. A man named Zhang Guoliang is described as a quote-unquote bandit in the sources. For nearly a decade, Zhang led an army of up to 10,000 men through the countryside, with sayings such as, take from the rich to save the poor, and kill the officials but spare the people. He was a bandit with a conscience, a Robin Hood-like figure, at least in his self-presentation. I can't say how much of it was actually true. In the early 1850s, around the time that the Taiping were fighting their first major battles, imperial forces finally cornered Zhang. But instead of killing him, the Qing recognized a useful ally and brought Zhang and his army over to their side, probably to fight other bandits. These bandits came with all sorts of backgrounds, but their appearance as such was symbolic of a social and economic system in crisis. Toby Meyer Fung writes of China at the time, quote, Landlords pressured tenants to pay their rents so they could in turn pay their taxes, along with the host of irregular fees that the bureaucracy had initiated in order to make up for its own shrinking fiscal resources. Tenants absconded. Landlords sold their holdings and departed. Those without means turned to banditry, end quote. Another historian, Julia Laval, writes that between 1842 and 1849, the Qing faced 110 incidents of mass protest or revolt, which she says could be traced in large part to the economic pain caused by the rising price of silver. The importance of silver to the Chinese economy is something we discussed back in episode 1.3 as it related to the downfall of the Ming Empire, and episode 1.8 as how it impacted the Qing Empire in the 1820s and 1830s. We'll look more at what was going on with the price of silver in the 1840s in a few episodes. Guangxi in the 19th century was linguistically and ethnically diverse. First, there were a large number of indigenous peoples whose ancestors lived in the area prior to its incorporation into the Han Empire. The most prominent in our story are referred to in the sources as Yao, Zhuang, and Miao, each of which had their own internal subdivisions and identities. For example, my understanding is that Yao and Miao 
are sometimes grouped together with other groups as the Hmong. These groups spoke languages that belonged to Thai and Vietnamese family languages, as opposed to one of the languages belonging to the Sinitic family. Since all the written sources by scholars I have to work with were written by outsiders, the distinctions among them were washed out and lost to history. The indigenous peoples also varied culturally and economically. Many had become quote-unquote cyanized, adopting practices and languages brought to the region by invaders and immigrants from other places. Other groups maintained culturally distinct practices and economies. For example, Sweden agriculture, sometimes called slash and burn, was practiced by many. This is a practice where the fire is used to clear land and then is then farmed for several years until the soil becomes exhausted, when the process is repeated on a different plot of land, while the abandoned plots are left to return to forest. Many indigenous men ignored the Qing requirement to wear the Q hairstyle, instead growing their hair long and loose. These groups, often identified as Yao, were a small minority who stuck to the most inaccessible parts of the province. The Zhuang, by contrast, adopted many Chinese cultural and subsistence practices. In contrast to the Yao, their lineages might work the same land for many generations. In addition to their Thai language family, they also spoke a Yue dialect, but they were still distinct. Yue-speaking immigrants from Guangdong, often described as having Han ethnicity, were scandalized by the practice of Zhuang men and women singing flirtatious and sexually charged duets, among other practices. Together, the Zhuang and the families who immigrated from Guangdong province made up the majority of Guangxi's population. The ethnic Han of Guangxi were broadly divided into two groups. The first were the Punti, which means something like locals or native. Though their ancestry in the region didn't go back as far as the indigenous groups, their identity as Punti distinguished them from the Hakka, or guest families. The name Hakka began as a pejorative term, like gypsy or oki, given to them by self-identified Punti. But, like many derogatory names coined by outsiders, it was claimed and adopted by the Hakka themselves. We met the Hakka back in episode 1.6, because Hong Shikuan came from a Hakka family. Feng Yunchan was also Hakka, since it's been a while, let's briefly revisit the Hakka and what's particularly relevant to the formation and growth of the Society of God Worshippers. The first Hakka were refugees from Henan and Shandong provinces, fleeing war in the 10th century. Most Hakka in Lingnan came there as refugees and migrants in the aftermath of the Qing conquests of the 17th century. Professor Mary Erbao writes that, although the Hakka are ethnically Han Chinese, quote, no other Han subgroup approaches the Hakka combination of diaspora, stigma, pride, and silent solidarity against outsiders. End quote. The Hakka were defined by their cohesiveness in spite of their geographic dispersion. Traditional Chinese culture puts a heavy emphasis on the importance of being rooted in a certain place. By definition, the Hakka were rootless, even if in practice they lived in the same place for hundreds of years as Hong's family had. The Hakka were relatively recent arrivals in Guiping County, with large numbers moving into the region beginning in the early 1800s, practicing mountain agriculture and living in scattered villages. By the time Feng arrived in 1844, 
the Hakka were still a minority population in Guangxi province as a whole, but made up the majority in some regions. Hakka culture had adapted to an insecure life on the move. The ability to speak Hakka was considered more important to one's identity than being a member of any particular clan. Hakka who refused to speak the language were ostracized and barred from the family ancestry sites, and non-Hakka women who married Hakka husbands were expected to learn the language and teach it to her children. The Hakka language was a mutually intelligible language across the entire diaspora, indicating frequent travel and interaction between groups in different regions. And just because there were a bunch of ethnic and cultural groups in Guangxi doesn't mean that conflict was bound to happen along ethnic lines. Many people of different groups lived together, married, had children, and worshipped at the same temples. The scholar Philip Kuhn says that even though conflicts in Guangxi did run along ethnic lines, they were, quote, in many respects, indistinguishable from the interlineage vendettas that were a common feature of rural life throughout the South, end quote. If you looked at more ethnically homogeneous parts of Lingnan, you'd find the same kinds of conflicts along lines of lineage instead of ethnicity. Absent ethnic divisions, material reality, and crisis would still have resulted in conflict. Jonathan Spence writes that the conflicts between Hakka and the others in the region were so bad that local Yue speakers had a popular slogan, Revenge against those who speak the Hakka tongue. As Feng Yunshan traveled and preached, he was able to tap into this Hakka network. Even when he was hundreds of miles from home, Feng wasn't a stranger among the Hakka, but was one of them. Unsurprisingly, many of the earliest god worshippers were Hakka, and the movement's early leaders were overwhelmingly Hakka. During these years, non-Hakka god worshippers tended to come from professions that had large numbers of Hakka, such as tenant farmers, miners, soldiers, blacksmiths, barbers, and masons. By the 1840s, local population growth and immigration had pushed people into smaller and more marginal plots of land. This competition for land increased the frequency and intensity of conflict among neighboring groups. Hakka, who had always lived in fortified settlements, built their village walls taller. Hakka men and women both worked in the fields and carried whatever weapons they owned with them, ready to respond to a rally call against any threat. As the god worshippers converted communities to their new faith, many of these Hakka villages became safe havens from inter-ethnic conflict or bandit raids. If a group of god worshippers in one place was threatened or driven from their homes, they could find refuge with another, relatively stronger community. Some scholars have looked at these facts and seen the society of god worshippers following some sort of pro-ethnic nationalism, pitting the Hakka-led Han Chinese against the foreign Manchu elite. I don't think that this is the best interpretation of the evidence that we have. The historian Carl Kilcourse argues that the Taiping's major beef, with the Tring at least, was about their religious stance. Kilcourse argues that the god worshippers split with the Qing over religious ideology and the emperor's relationship with the divine, and that the hatred of the Qing would have been just as intense if they had been ethnic Han instead of Manchu. I think this view is pretty much right if you're looking at things from a high and philosophical level. Hatred of the Qing wasn't driven by ethnocentrism or racism. As we'll see in future episodes, before the Taiping Civil War, ethnic divisions between quote-unquote Manchu and quote-unquote Han Chinese 
just wasn't that well-defined outside of the immediate imperial circle. Kilcourse's argument, however, doesn't take into account the general and widespread anti-Qing feelings in Lingnan, and how this would have affected the beliefs and attitudes of the everyday god-worshipper convert. Anti-Qing sentiments flourished in Guangzhou after the Opium War, and were spread throughout Lingnan in the wake of the Nanjing Treaty by groups like the Triads. Even if you agree with Kilcourse's interpretation that Hong opposed the Qing only or primarily on theological grounds, many joining god-worshippers didn't need to be convinced that the Qing were the enemy. They already believed that. Ethnic affiliation was not the only means by which people organized themselves for protection in Guangxi. After 1842, Lingnan saw an explosion of secret societies. The secret societies of 19th century Lingnan had some common characteristics. One, they were decentralized, with many local leaders and opaque membership roles. Two, members were initiated by a local lodge by sharing of secret passwords, handshakes, and the like. Three, they possessed secret knowledge, expressed through things like complex numerology. Four, an ideology of equality, with membership that crossed ethnic, professional, and class distinctions. Though... The structure of the secret societies was not completely disconnected from the hierarchies of broader society. The secret societies counted members of powerful clans and captains of Tuanlian militias among their members. 5. Members provided aid to each other. Sometimes this was active, like providing food. Other times, it meant just not robbing a traveler when they flashed a secret hand signal, revealing common society membership. The most important secret society was the Tian Di Hui, or the Heaven and Earth Society. For simplicity, this is the one I'm going to focus on. Just know that although they share common characteristics, the other societies were a bit different. You may have heard of them as the Triads, who would later be known for organized crime and are commonly incorporated into modern popular culture. The Triads refers to three related groups, the Heaven and Earth Society, the Triple Dot Society, and the Triple Unity Society. All three of these secret societies shared a common founding myth that revolved around the goal of overthrowing the Qing and restoring the Ming Dynasty. Members of the Heaven and Earth Society said that their organization was started by five Shaolin monks fleeing the Qing conquerors. Here's how one of their texts describes how this political goal fit into a much larger belief system. Quote, we revere the heavenly doctrine of being united in one, therefore desire to overthrow the Qing and restore the Ming, so that the will of heaven and that of earth shall be once more united. Tonight we pledge ourselves before heaven that the brethren in the whole universe shall be as if from one womb, as if begotten by one father, as if nurtured by one mother, and as if they were one stock and origin." End quote. It's unclear how much the god-worshipper ideology was influenced by the secret societies, or how much was coincidental overlap, given that these ideas could fairly easily arise from basic Christian beliefs. We'll come back to this topic in a future episode when we discuss the structure of the Taiping Heavenly Family and the society. Philip Kuhn says that the triads had an imperial pretension, quote, a covert ceremonial usage in peaceful times, which flowered into a vigorous Ming restorationism during the 19th century, complete with Ming pretenders and Ming reign titles. End quote. 
Modern scholars believe that the Heaven and Earth Society was founded in Fujian province in 1761 as a mutual aid society of, quote, restless, disaffected men, among them itinerant monks, teachers of Chinese boxing techniques, gamblers, candy makers, traveling doctors, who grew up in southeastern provinces of Fujian and Guangdong, end quote. The organization was probably not political at first, but that would change. Local groups were organized into lodges or halls. The word used was the same as the one traditionally used to describe the ancestral hall that lineages maintained to remember and make offerings to their ancestors. This concept of the hall was also tied closely to village life, where property was very often deeded to the hall instead of to any individual or nuclear family. Within a few decades, the Heaven and Earth Society had lodges established throughout Fujian, Guangdong, and Guangxi provinces. It's very hard to say exactly how widespread the movement was or how many members they had, however. What is clear is that the Heaven and Earth Society's membership exploded, absolutely exploded, after the Opium War. Although membership was still banned, the Qing couldn't suppress the society's growth for the same reason that they couldn't deal with the bandits or the pirates. Members of the society were commonly participants in and leaders of riots and protests against Qing policy toward the British, among other issues. As the Taiping marched north in their conquests of the early 1850s, triad leaders plotted their own uprisings and attempt to fulfill their own political aspirations. The protection offered by secret societies like the Heaven and Earth Society was especially valuable to people who lived outside of strong clans or villages and had less physical and emotional security. Joining the society was an opportunity to form personal bonds of equality across clan and family lines. They offered members a new beginning. Frederick Waitman writes that, quote, to join the brotherhood was to be reborn, to enter a new set of eternal relationships. Social distinctions would be abolished. A great unity would emerge, end quote. In the real world, class and social distinctions didn't disappear all the way and were often replicated within these societies, but it really varied lodge to lodge. In reality, class and social distinctions didn't disappear and were often replicated within different society lodges. However, the idea of social equality was still valuable compared to the status quo, and as an ideology, it was a powerful recruitment tool. Organizations like the Heaven and Earth Society offered a brotherhood where you could find protection from robbery or worse. But the brotherhoods could easily be organized to prey on outsiders. Society lodges organized crime rings and protection rackets, and robbed wealthy gentry and county treasuries. But crime wasn't required or really an essential part of being in a secret society. Each Heaven and Earth Lodge had strong ties to its local community and existed alongside it. Kuhn explains that, quote, They existed not as groups cut off from the normal order of life, like the bandit groups in the hills, but as functioning parts of local society. Triad membership offered protection and guidance amid the manifold difficulties and dangers of 19th century community life. Thus, it is not surprising that the militarization of such groups remained at a low level, with members remaining within the local community until forced out of it by repression or economic disaster. End quote. The triad lodges around Guiping were more criminally active, I would say, than what was typical in some place like Guangzhou. 
By the time Hong and Feng arrived there in 1844, the Heaven and Earth Society had, quote, swelled their numbers in Guangxi by forcing local farmers with threats or murders of those who showed reluctance to join them, end quote. Some society lodges ran major gambling operations in the area around Guiping, selling alcohol and opium as well. When Feng preached the commandments of the god worshippers, which included prohibitions on opium and gambling, he was speaking to a real social problem, not something abstract. Hakka were commonly members of the Heaven and Earth Society, so it's certain that many of those to whom Feng preached belonged to or were at least familiar with the Heaven and Earth Society. When members of that society heard Feng preach about God and the Father and his younger son, Hong Shiquan, they would have heard an auspicious connection to their own secret knowledge. The word Hong, written using the same character as Hong Shiquan's family name, carried a special significance to them. Hong means vast or flood, and was the first character in the name of the Ming Dynasty's founder, Hong Wu. For many, this wasn't just a coincidence, but a sign from heaven that what Feng said was true. Common ideologies of universal brotherhood and equality also probably helped smooth the conversion of members of the Heaven and Earth Society into the Society of God Worshippers. Both groups used the same word, hui, that is translated in English as society. Both groups performed initiation rituals and offered members protection. But to be clear, the god worshippers were not just another secret society in the mold of the triads. As we'll see, being a god worshipper was much, much more involved and required a higher level of commitment. This will become very clear when the god worshippers become the Taiping. They initially had some success allying with triad leaders against the Qing. However, as we'll see in a few episodes, the strict Taiping rules of behavior and puritanical zeal quickly drove most of them away. The triads and the god worshippers were not the only organizations trying to recruit residents in Lingnan during the 1840s. After the conclusion of the Opium War, the prohibition against Christianity in the Qing Empire was effectively lifted. The British also now had their own colony at Hong Kong, from which they could freely operate. But foreigners were still not allowed in any territory in the Qing Empire beyond the five treaty ports. So, in 1844, the eccentric, polyglot Prussian missionary Karl Gutzloff launched an organization called the Chinese Union, also known as the Chinese Gospel Union, or simply the Union. The word Chinese in the name Chinese Union was Han, the character used for the ancient Han dynasty that also lent its name to the Han ethnicity. This predates any sort of linguistic unity across the empire beyond the written language of the literate. And this is not the same word that we translate in English for the country today, China, which is the phrase Zhongguo, which literally translates to something like central state or middle kingdom. Nor is it the word used to describe a quote-unquote Chinese person, as in a citizen of the Chinese state. Gustav was very purposeful in his word choice, perhaps hoping to help forge some sort of Han Christian identity that would stand opposed to the heathen Qing. The union began with several dozen preachers, and within a year had grown to several hundred, with a number of chapters throughout Guangdong and Guangxi provinces, including one established in Guiping County in 1846. Gutzloff was not very concerned whether or not his missionaries conformed to doctrinal purity. 
which he thought would make recruitment much easier. Men like Ishakar Roberts, who we'll formally meet in a few episodes, wanted to make sure that his converts truly understood what they were agreeing to when they converted to Christianity. Men that worked for Western missionaries, like the printer Chao Gao or Liang Fa, learned about Christianity, attended prayer meetings, and had many conversations with their sponsors before they were allowed baptism, a process that sometimes took years. Gutzloff didn't think that this was necessary. He saw the value in conversion as the building of a spiritual brotherhood, a community of Christians. He didn't much care if they followed the exact tenets of this or that denomination, or whether or not they continued their old practices like ancestor worship. Gutzloff believed that in order to convert all of China to Christianity, it was important to, quote, learn from their own mouths their prejudices, witness their vices, and hear their defense in order to meet them effectually. In style, we ought to conform entirely to Chinese taste. The converts ought themselves to contribute towards the advancement of the blessed work, and the congregations formed become missionary societies to all around them, end quote. This approach was pioneered, of course, by the first native to preach in the countryside of Lingnan, Liangfa. In addition to writing good words for an indigenous audience, Liang had been an active missionary before his exile. On one trip, he traveled 250 miles into the interior to preach and spread the word of Jesus' salvation. By 1848, Gutzloff claimed nearly 500 baptisms over a dozen provinces. Given the amount of effort he'd put into this, it was a really unimpressive number. The average Union preacher was a man looking for a steady paycheck in a time of trouble, rather than a devout missionary like Liang Fa, driven to save the souls of his countrymen. For comparison, there were around 2,000 God-worshippers in and around Thistle Mountain by 1847, and 10,000 just a few years later. Some God-worshippers actually claimed membership in the Chinese Union as well, but it's unclear which came first. Gutzloff's theory of conforming to Chinese taste wasn't wrong, he just didn't do it very well. The Union, still, had an incredible impact on the story of Hong Shiquan and the Taiping. Thomas Riley goes so far as to say that Gutzloff's, quote, impact on the Taiping far exceeded that of all other missionary efforts combined, end quote. And that means he's including Liang Fa. This, he says, was because members of the Chinese Union brought thousands and thousands of Bibles and even more pamphlets into the empire's interior. The version of the Bible that they carried was not the awkward translation that Liang Fa used when he wrote Good Words, but a new translation led by Gutzloff himself. Gutzloff had translated nearly all of the Old Testament on his own, while another missionary led the translation of the New Testament with Gutzloff editing. While Liang Fa's Good Words is incredibly important to bringing Christianity to Hong, it was relatively short and omitted many biblical themes and almost all of the Old Testament. Liang's emphasis followed the concerns of his foreign missionary friends, who emphasized a, quote, individualistic and culturally disembodied salvation, end quote, through Jesus. Instead, Riley says, quote, the Gutzloff Bible, by contrast, presented salvation in its historical development and as an interrelated religious, cultural, social, and political whole. In the Old Testament particularly, the Taiping could read a deity who punished nations that did evil and who rewarded those who did good, all the while being concerned with cultural matters such as music, food, and marriage customs, 
all matters taking place within the history of a specific people. This connection between religion and its cultural expression was reestablished by the Bible itself in its entirety of the Old and New Testaments. End quote. From this Bible, Hong learned that there were ten commandments instead of the six he'd found in Liang, and got the entire story of how Shangdi had personally handed them down to Moses. He learned of the Exodus, of the years of wandering, and the founding of a kingdom for God's chosen people. These biblical stories had a deep influence on the development of the Taiping political project over the coming years. Gutzloff's translation of the Bible was adopted with Hong's own edits and commentary as the official Bible of the Taiping. There isn't any direct evidence that Hong Shiquan or Feng Yunshan met with a union preacher or received the full Bible until 1847, when a member of the union visited Hong in Guanlubu and invited him and Hong Rangan to visit Hong Kong. But there is a lot of circumstantial evidence that Hong and Feng crossed paths with the Chinese Union before that. First, there was opportunity. We know Union preachers were active near Guanglubu and Thistle Mountain while Hong and Feng were present. Hong Rangan told Theodore Hamburg that one of the reasons why his cousin left for Guangxi in 1844 was that they had, quote, learned that some foreign brethren were preaching the gospel and building churches, end quote. If this is true, it was certainly Preachers of the Chinese Union, which was founded that same year. However, I tend to discount this account because no foreigners had actually traveled to Guangxi, and Rengan had a habit of letting following events color some of his recollections, especially when it was flattering to his missionary friends. I still think it is much more likely that Xiquan picked Guangxi as his eventual destination because he had cousins living there whom he had already converted and who could support him when he arrived. The best evidence for interaction between the God worshippers in the Chinese Union and Hong meeting Union preachers and acquiring at least part of the Old Testament comes from a document called the Taiping Imperial Declaration, which is believed to have been composed around 1844 or 1845. The Declaration was a collection of several odes and exhortations, such as the ones we discussed last episode. In these texts, Hong distinguishes between the Old and New Testaments. This is a distinction that good words didn't make, so it's supposed that Hong had learned of the Old and New Testament distinction in some way from the Chinese Union. He also refers to the full Ten Commandments in that document, whereas Liang, as we've seen, only listed six. However, it's also possible that these were later edits, as the oldest version of the document to survive was printed in 1852, and Hong continued to edit this and other publications up until the very end. So I'm personally skeptical that Hong received the Bible from the Chinese Union or anyone else before his trip to Hong Kong, and I don't think that Gutzloff was obviously more important to Hong's theological development than Liang Fa. Whether Hong read part or all of Gutzloff's Bible before 1847, the impact of its translation on Taiping theology was still tremendous. Carl Gutzloff's wife died in Singapore in 1849. Whether driven by her death or pre-planned, Gutzloff traveled to Europe shortly afterwards to raise money for the Union and to marry again. While working to raise funds, it became known that Gutzloff's Chinese Union was rife with corruption. It turned out that not all of the Bibles were being distributed to potential converts. Instead, Union preachers resold the Bibles back to the book's printer at a discount, who then in turn resold them to Gutzloff as a profit. 
Rumors were these illicit gains were used to fuel opium addictions and other sinful activities among the preachers. I've never read of any direct proof that Gutzloff himself was complicit in the plot. It probably didn't help his defense, though, that by this point in his life he was very wealthy. He'd inherited a large estate from his first wife after she died in childbirth. But it's also possible that he'd embezzled money from the Chinese Union. Why did such a wealthy man need others to support his missionary activities anyways? Personally, I don't think that Gutzloff was directly profiting from the Union, though it's very possible that he accepted some level of corruption among his preachers as a price to be paid for the conversion of the Chinese to Christianity. There were lots of souls there to be saved. This was a man, remember, who had no qualms translating for opium smugglers if it meant that he was able to preach and distribute Christian texts. After the scandal broke, Gutzloff fled back to Hong Kong, where he died shortly thereafter in 1851 at the age of 48, leaving his wife of one year in the state of 30,000 pounds, worth something in the neighborhood of 5 million pounds today. A writer focused on Protestant missionaries in China during the first half of the 19th century could easily make the case that I have way overemphasized Gutzloff's role within this milieu. But when the question is, how did 19th century Protestant missionaries help spark one of the most destructive and deadly wars of all time? The only two real contenders are Gutzloff and Liang Fa. Unlike Liang, however, who confined himself to missionary work and spent the years leading to 1842 in exile, Gutzloff played several key roles in the Opium War, which helped create the preconditions for two decades of cataclysmic civil war that came very close to making Gutzloff's goal a Chinese-style Christianity ruling over all of China, a reality. Next episode, we'll zoom in and look at how Feng Yunshan built the Society of God Worshippers, and what the God Worshippers actually did at Thistle Mountain. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a 5-star rating and review. Ratings and reviews really help new listeners find the show. If you have any feedback for the show, questions or comments, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at TinyInsectPod. Thanks. Thanks.